Welcome to the 24th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're taking a, a slight detour into personal projects. This isn't side consultancy work, but the things we do to scratch the itch that we have that we can't do at work for whatever reason. I'm going to start off this week. I have a number of side projects, and most of them come from either frustrations with service providers in the area or with the fact that most of the things I do at work are not tangible. At the end of the day, I've done a bunch of work and I've done a bunch of things and there's nothing that I can pick up or look at or take a picture of to say, hey, I made something. I I accomplished a thing. So some of my, some of the projects I'm going to talk about, talk about in this episode are actual physical objects. And one of the most recent things that I've completed is a mute switch, a foot, a foot operated mute switch that I've made for my microphone. So for conference calls and for this podcast, I'm able to very quickly and simply silence my mic. The switch itself is a couple pieces of plywood glued together, a reed switch, a magnet, a USB-based Arduino, a Teensy, and some Python code. And I'll have all the stuff collected and posted to my GitHub account. But essentially what it does is it wires into OS X, and there's a Python daemon I run in OS X that talks to the Teensy and sends very, very basic... Um, serial data back and forth to communicate when the switch is when the when the switch is closed when the switch is open. It illuminates an LED or not depending on the state of the mute, and then it instructs OS 10 to either mute or um, set my input volume to 100%. And it works rather well, and it's very reliable. And I highly recommend anybody who doesn't have an actual mute switch look at something like this because it is invaluable to doing audio work. And with that. I nominate you, Jared. Cool. So one thing I've been working on uh, is a what I call a single node Docker host, but it, it's really just I have a Linux box that I, I run uh, ZFS on right now that has like Plex and a whole bunch of other things that runs on it um, that some things are Dockerized, some things aren't. And so I'm actually trying to go through and, and Dockerize everything and really try to have everything live in ZFS uh as much as I can. So I've been trying to go through and, and pick a, uh, I guess the proper term is a Docker orchestration tool that is meant for single node though, uh, which is kind of almost an, uh, just the complete different direction than what most orchestration tools are trying to solve. Cause obviously things like, um, Kubernetes or Mesos, Aurora, uh, all those are trying to scale out. And I'm technically trying to scale in or down to just one node. So there's there's two that I've had my eye on that I keep going back and forth on. There's there's obviously the baked in swarm from Docker. My only complaint with that is, is that I, I basically either have to be on the host to manage it or I have to um, essentially tunnel to the host. And I kind of wanted an API so that I can kind of have my config files live in Git and then I can use any machine um, that I'm working on uh, to push configs to the quote-unquote cluster, which is a single node. There's also Nomad um, that I'm really heavy, heavily leaning towards as it has like an API that you submit jobs to. It's, it's something I'm very familiar with coming from like a Mesos Aurora background. Um, the only problem right now is that Nomad doesn't support any form of local storage or persistent storage, not even like just the regular um, Docker volumes. However, apparently in the upcoming release, they're going to allow you to use the 
um, local storage option or the, the volume option for local storage with a caveat being obviously for people who are running this in true clusters that it won't support multi-tenancy. And I'm, I'm fine with that because obviously I just have one machine. I just want to, I really just want it to where if the box collapses on me and I need to restart from scratch, I'm not having to spend all day flipping all the buttons again that I did to get it all set up. I just want to basically pull down my dot, my config and, and push it to Nomad or whatever that I'm running on there. Um, which kind of leads me to my last little point. I, th- I think we've talked about this before. Maybe this should be a topic, but I really wish there was a true competitor to Puppet. Um, Ansible's somewhat there, but I find myself starting down the Ansible path and then I, I stop quickly because it's just, there's, I, I feel like I'm doing either too many things manually. There's not like a, a way to uh, do it in a Ansible fashion. Like, uh, what was the one thing I was trying to manage in, in Puppet? Hell, ZFS. So Puppet actually has, you know, ZFS module or, or um, um, methods to manage ZFS pools, uh, to manage um, their mounts and everything. There is some ZFS support for Ansible, but it really is just um, creating, I think it was the pools and that's it. it it's very limited. So I'm either going to have to manually do it and then I'm, basically using you know shell commands to make sure ensure things are mounted or whatever and then or then i gotta drop over to puppet and then if i drop over to puppet i gotta do either masterless because again i've just got this one box or do master server and then i'm setting up a server so you get down this path this rabbit hole of all this stuff and if you do master server you gotta worry about pki and uh anyway so i really wish there was a true puppet competitor that could be standalone yet as dare I say powerful as puppet compared to, to something like Ansible. But anyway, how about so you, Jack? My hobby is asking people questions. And the question I'm going to ask is Jared, how are you running ZFS on Linux? I'm using uh, ZFS for Linux. <laughs> it's a, um, a project that is, it's basically a kernel module um, that you build with um, DKMS and it, uh, you know, it's uh, or ZFS on Linux. Did I say for Linux? ZFS on Linux. Um, however, I am getting ready to, and hence the reason why I'm porting everything to Docker, I'm getting ready to reinstall with Ubuntu. Uh, the latest LTS release has native ZF, ZFS support baked in. No more recompiling Zineal modules. has native coming. ZFS support? They do. Man, I've learned something today. I can go home. Yeah. They, uh, or at least, you know, you don't have to. Be, you, you could do yum or excuse me yum. Ooh, that was a sin. Apt-get install uh, <laughs> uh, ZFS and, and you're and you're done. There is no, um, you know, they maintain a kernel module for it. There's no DKMS compiling or any of that kind of mess. So it's My a work lot. With ZFS on Linux has been very clunky, and of, of course, it was designed to be clunky. That's why the license is incompatible. But um, I'm glad to see that starting to improve and. ZFS is something I wish I would spend a little time with myself. And also, there is Docker support for ZFS, um, where they'll actually use, uh, you know, the snapshotting and layering features to um, with the images. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Jack, what about you? What's a project you're working on? So, one of the things I like to do, apparently, is is run serverless uh, websites. And I really think I've been running serverless websites since before it was cool. 
Um, but I've always been interested in the the unique features of Amazon S3 and and uh, competing products, and the fact that they are web accessible. Um, and I realized a long time ago that uh, even my blog, which has a, a feed of comments on it, there's not a lot of of stuff that's generated especially for each user. Um, it's pretty much static content as long as you can handle comments. And in, uh, insert discuss, and all of a sudden you have the ability to make a really strong uh, a static website hosted on S3 um, that is really all you need for a personal website or perhaps all you need for really a business website. Um, Brendan let me set up the website for this very podcast that way. So um, that website lives on S3. Our podcast files live on S3. We front everything through Cloudflare and host our DNS through Cloudflare. Um, And Cloudflare has a a lovely free level that even includes SSL. Um, So uh, my costs for running an individual website uh, really become quite low, uh, really on the verge of pennies a month uh, to run a website. And that's a world of difference from paying $10 or $20 a month to run a VM. Um, because they're serverless, because they depend on on people like Cloudflare and the redundancy features of S3, uh, the websites are incredibly reliable. Um, I've really never had an issue with um, outages or downtime uh, because of a Cloudflare or S3 or CloudFront issue. Uh, those services are pretty reliable. Uh, when I was running on a VM, of course, if I ever did maintenance to the VM or had to reboot the thing for any reason, of course, they weren't my website. And I definitely had a couple issues where uh, websites I was running for organizations uh, went down, crashed for some odd reason, and I didn't notice um, because I don't run another VM to monitor all the rest of my personal VMs um, because, well, it's sort of the hobby thing. How much infrastructure do you need for your hobby? Um, well, if so, you're Jared, apparently quite a lot. Yeah, apparently I need <laughs> to hook up with Jared to run, um, you know, some Prometheus or something. Um, but yeah, that's one of the interesting things I've been working on recently, and it's definitely the projects of mine that are most complete. Now, updating those websites, that's a different story. You laugh, but I have a Graphite instance locally that I feed data into for another one of my projects, which was a Perl script that scraped the status page of my cable modem because I was having incredible issues with getting reliable service from the local provider. And things were dropping in and out, and the modem was restarting constantly. And I noticed that if you looked at the signal-to-noise ratios and the power levels on the channels that you could watch those grow or drop depending on if you're looking at the inputs or the outputs. And then after a certain period of time, you'd get a timeout and then the modem would reset trying to reconnect. So it was ugly, but I used um, a couple of Perl modules off of CPAN that will just, will, will turn web tables into data structures in Perl you can you can poke at. And I created a, a little quick and dirty script that would go through and scrape the content of the pages, dump it into Graphite, and then I could I could next time that the technician showed up, I could say, okay, here's what happens. The signal level goes from here to there. The, mo- the modem restarts. This is not a problem with my computer or the wireless network. This is a problem with the line coming into the house. Can you please actually fix this? And the tech was usually delighted to go, oh, I, 
I actually have data I can look at and not just sort of stumble around and try to guess what the problem is. Um, I've since taken this and I've, I've attached a temperature sensor to the machine as well so I can, to the Raspberry Pi that's doing this. And so I can also feed um, that data back into Graphite and keep track of the temperature in the office. But that's a, home metrics platforms are kind of nice. I, I want to redo it in Prometheus, but I haven't had the time yet. You know, Circonus, that's a metric monitoring company, um, has a free level account, which is actually quite powerful. And while you were discussing this, I was just thinking in my head of of, of how to extend the uh, host-based agent for Circonus to support those metrics as well. And actually, I was inspired by you, Brendan. And when I was trying to learn Prometheus, one of the first exporters I wrote was a surfboard metrics exporter. Um, and so I, uh, I now, I run a, I do run a Prometheus instance locally, uh, in Docker, uh, with the state of files living on ZFS. <laughs> um, and, um, I scrape my modem every, uh, I did crease it to a minute. I was doing it every 15 seconds and I think I was burning up the modem because that thing does have to, does have to work a little bit to, to render that web page. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it really helped me learn the Python Prometheus client, and now I'm trying to do that, port it to Go to learn Go, although parsing HTML with Go is, uh, yeah, it's interesting. We call it screen scraping in the biz. <laughs> Another piece of hardware that I was playing with, um, Another piece of hardware that I have built is a clock out of um, a piece of red oak and 72 uh, WS2812 through-hole LEDs and a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino. Um, I was trying to build a clock for my kids to make it very clear to them when it was okay to wake up and when to go back to sleep. And this very quickly spiraled out of control instead of having just a simple color scheme based on time of day. I also decided, okay, I'm going to animate the minute hand and the hour hand, and I'm going to animate this, and I'm going to animate that and put in special triggers for when I have meetings. And it very quickly became a, a large, complicated monstrosity, and I kind of fell in love with it. So I abandoned the first project, which was just using a, a simple like $8 Amazon wall clock that I t- put a strip light of LEDs in and bought a piece of nice oak and drilled holes in it and have mounted the LEDs and individually soldered them in. So I have a very kind of modern looking clock to hang on my wall that is in my office and not in the kids' room. And I get to do nice things with it and dim the power of the lights based on things. And it's it's completely a, a palaver. But again, this is one of those things where most of the time at work, I, I'm not doing things that I can, at the end of the day, put my hands on or see. I... I can look at graphs and stuff, but that's not the same thing. And so I spent probably $120 on maybe $150 on parts and components and, and trials in this clock that I could have purchased off the shelf much cheaper, but this one's, this one's mine and I, I made it and I, I kind of love it. Yeah. I, um, Oh man, I, uh, I have some hardware projects that I'm messing around with too. Cause I, I imagine, are you using the Pi to drive that or something else? So again, I, I have a, an Arduino hooked up that actually controls the lights because the timing on those particular LEDs is very, very specific. But the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi talks to your Arduino and gives it the controls of what to illuminate and when those things. Well, I've got a, I've got a Pi that I've got hooked up to my garage door opener now 
and um, with the ultimate end goal to have HomeKit slash Siri control it. Um, but I, I at least have the hardware side done, and if I have the Pi on, I can execute commands to either raise or lower or detect if the the door is open or closed because I have two um, read switches on either side of the door. So if it's open, you know, it's it's activated one, and if it's closed, it activates the other. Uh, so that way I can tell if either it's it's opening slash closing or just in a an, an in-between state. Um, but I've been trying to figure out a way to sanely uh, use this with HomeKit. There's obviously, there's there's a ton of, or not a ton, but there's quite a few open source projects. Uh, there's one Node.js-based one called Home, Home something, um, but it's Node.js and it's a little hacky for for my tastes um there's one called OpenHab, which recently just released a new version uh version two i believe that has HomeKit functionality baked in um but they are currently still working on like the different the newer types that ios 10 uh, added or maybe it was nine which was garage door and a few other ones like that there's also one by a guy who created a HomeKit app. Well, actually, one of the first HomeKit um, apps you could use before Apple released their Home app. Um, and he has a little uh, HomeKit um, application in Go that can communicate with um, with Apple or with your uh, HomeKit devices and everything. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little nervous doing that. I'm just afraid that Apple's going to close the door or... Uh, start only allowing things that are like hardware signed or whatever because they, they've now made it where you have to be a an authorized uh, device maker or whatever, you know, go through the, the certified certification process with them and actually have certificates and hardware keys and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think they've like hard enforced that. Like you can manually override that when you add devices and that's how these people are getting around it with all these uh, various uh, software pieces, but I'm afraid soon enough Apple's just going to close that off completely. And there's unfortunately no real open bridge yet that will do like X10 or some of these other protocols that are much well understood and you can then connect in with the Pi. So I'm I'm still trying to get there, but I can at least, I might just, um, the, the short gap might just have like a web page that's uh, like client-side certificate-based authentication based and just have like a little web page to open and close it i actually purchased the home kit app that i wrote the was ten dollars in the app store i think with the go libraries and i like it but i don't have enough experience with with the tool chain that to really do it correctly so my my experiments have never lasted more than an hour or two before either i hit a, an unrecoverable error or something else goes wrong and i've just never really gotten back to it yeah, and that's the other thing. That's the reason I would like, you know, there's there's some actual, you know, HomeKit um, devices out there. Uh, Levitron makes one as well as, um, oh, who's the other home automation name? Um, they, they, there's a couple out there that then work with their protocols and their devices. So, like, you can get light switches and um, outlets and things like that. But then some of those are like wireless or, or Wi-Fi even, and that that scares the daylights out of me. Um, some of them are do have like a wired protocol, uh, but it's not like X10. Um, so anyway, it's it's still unfortunate, even though it's like three or four years old at this point. Like HomeKit is, I think it was introduced what iOS seven maybe or eight, uh, 
maybe it is only two or three years old, but still, it just it, it's still so young, unfortunately, that it, it still needs some time for the manufacturers to catch up before I think it will be easy enough for uh, hobbyists to tack in, tackle and uh, tap into. My limited experience with uh, hardware-based projects, well, the thing I miss most about this this whole idea of everything's in the cloud is I miss being able to go downstairs to the data center and do some data center work where one can actually physically achieve something and see the progress um, progress uh, right in front of you. Um, that was that was always very rewarding um, and helped me balance out my work life. There's nothing like unracking a server that that needs to be taken out in the street and shot. There's nothing like taking a box full of servers and racking a uh, a good rack full and wearing the cables to your perfection. But yeah, um, that's that's a thing of the past. Um, and I've been looking at um, since most of my hobbies surround uh, the music world, uh, building some MIDI bass instruments. Um, with a Raspberry Pi or Arduino. Um, I picked up some parts for that. Uh, I've uh, got some ideas for some circuits. Uh, doing MIDI work is really not very difficult. MIDI's been around since the 80s, and it's, wow, still a mainstay as far as uh, computer-based music. Uh, you can't buy a uh, digital keyboard that doesn't have a MIDI out uh, cable on it. So I had some ideas there, but... Um, I'm going to have to actually have some free time and probably spend some time with Jared so he can help me with some woodworking. Ooh. But yeah, the the only really other thing I've I've looked at and been almost serious about is is doing some retro gaming on uh, Raspberry Pi with uh, RetroPie. Because um, it wasn't too long ago that I realized that all of the old games that I'm kind of nostalgic about, um, they easily run on a RetroPie or a, a Raspberry Pi. And really, even some of the newer stuff that I kind of semi-like will still run on a Raspberry Pi. They're amazingly powerful little devices. Um, and since I really have no interest in modern games, um, it's it's amazing what you can do with a little Raspberry Pi. But yeah, I haven't done that either. The Raspberry Pi 3 is pretty amazing. I would say it's quad-core, and it's got built-in Bluetooth and built-in Wi-Fi and it's still the same size and same price. It's it's a great little machine for most things. I have built Linux workstations for myself that were not as powerful as that little Raspberry Pi 3. Part of me wonders if my ridiculous setup at home with multiple monitors would be better suited with multiple Raspberry Pis hooked up one to each monitor and then have Synergy running and sharing the keyboard mouse and copy-paste buffer between them. That's probably a bridge too far for this year or maybe even next but that would be fun kind of scary that the linux workstations i like to use it's really becoming very possible that i could run that on a raspberry pi and not really think twice about it most of our work is remote these days you know you connect to an ssh session somewhere else you connect via web browser to a portal some other other person's api there's not a lot of locally done processing on your workstation itself I mean, even some basic coding can easily be done locally. But yeah, that sort of brings me to the uh, to the last thing I sort of enjoy doing is is I really enjoy a good coding project. Um, but I don't have a lot of really uh, personal coding projects, I guess. Um, usually the things I get sucked into are somehow work-related. 
uh, because I'm trying to build a solution where a solution really doesn't exist yet. And I get sort of sucked into that, and I, well, at least I used to uh, be able to go home, and and it was actually relaxing to be able to do some research and do a little bit of coding and figure out, will this approach be viable? Will this approach work? Can I do something this way? And then I can walk into work and say, I've got this idea. I want to code up a solution that looks like this, and these are the advantages and disadvantages of it. Um, yeah, that's why people think I'm smart. Um, but yeah, at this point, I have a, a, a 19-month-old at home. So yeah, there's there's no coding for Jack. I guess my final project that I'm going to bring up tonight is the fact that I think Gmail's search tokenization is pretty awful. Horrible. And if you, for example, have a server with print 001 in the name and you do search for, you search for print you do not get a hit for print 001 because it doesn't tokenize the boundary between the number the, the alphas and the, the digits can i get a head desk sound effect right here and when you're trying to write regular expressions oh you can't write regular expressions huh when you're trying to write filters in gmail that are even moderately complex they get really bad really fast so i noticed that you can arch- you can download an archive of all of your gmail from Google gives you to in a standard inbox format, which is not the greatest format ever made, but it works. And there are some handy Python scripts that will import those files into Elasticsearch as individual, each email is an individual document in the cluster. So I poked at it a little bit and I figured out how to, how to tune the knobs and move the settings around. And I, I spun up a local Elasticsearch cluster where I can ingest all of my email, both personal and work into it, and then actually get real tokenization and real search on it. And it's, again, wildly overkill and not really, not terribly useful. Um, getting the, the archive dump from Google takes hours, if not days, depending on the size of your mailbox. And then you have to import it and you have to look for duplicates and other things. But if you're really anal about trying to find that one email and you can't find it in Google search or Gmail search interface, this kind of project can can really help. I don't have any example code to share for this. This is mostly a, I just sort of hacked it together as I went and I've got a, a Python script somewhere that'll, that'll handle it, but I, it's not suitable to share with anybody. It's, it's such ugly, nasty, hacky code, <laughs> but then just Kibana is a great interface to it. So if you can run Elasticsearch, you can probably pretty easily dump, you know, a couple hundred million documents into it without much work. And then you can search all your email. How do you keep that updated? So every couple of months, I do another dump from Gmail, and I delete the old index, and I import the new stuff. It's I, I don't have a, a good solution sure, for that yet. I was looking at a solution that would let would have a local Logstash instance. I know log into into Gmail as a pop agent or an IMAP agent and download your email for you, but it was not very reliable. It only runs on like five or ten minute intervals to be really sane otherwise google thinks you're trying to to do bad things to them and they shut you down which i can understand and not not a fun experience so i i quickly abandoned that that line yeah i I really love gmail i really love gmail but the stuff i tend to do with email in a work environment um i still to this day circle back and forth of dumping out all my gmail converting it to Mailder and running MUT on it. And if you're going that far, you may as well bring up not much or something for doing search. Yeah. I mean, at least MUT gives you regular expressions. 
slash procmail. I know I got some pretty funny looks at a previous job when I was working with Jared and I was slurping my Outlook mailbox down to my local disk to bring in too much and into not much because I hated the Outlook interface that much. If you're using Outlook, you're, uh, uh, you have no choice. I mean, it's spelled Outlook and it's pronounced Lookout. I'm, I'm just surprised that you like Gmail so much, Jack. Uh, since they, they bastardize, I'm out. <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, yeah. Um, um, let's just say that if you're uh, ever in a, a professional setup where you have to port email from um, a local inbox or, or some sort of mail store into Gmail, um, say you're migrating, um, yeah, world of hurt. Um, and then trying to teach your clients that don't want to use a new Gmail interface that you can still get to your email via IMAP like you used to, except where Gmail does it differently. Yep. What's this all mail folder? Yeah, that, that was a world of pain. Oh, no, don't don't mess with that. Don't touch that. So, yeah, I just use a Gmail interface. The um, keyboard shortcuts are reasonable. Um, really, I think that the poorest feature really is the shortcuts, not to mention the filtering. Um, but it's a lovely interface for uh, casual email usage. I'd agree with that. But it's really awful for anything complicated in terms of especially rules and alerting for the work we do. Of course, it's compared to any other um, hosted solution. So, so the the last project, and dare I even say it, a project that I, that I'll talk about, it, and it's not even the, the, I'm still kind of in the research stage with this one. So it's it's more just kind of like uh, a a dump of consciousness here. But I I have a few Hikvision IP cameras that I've put up around my house, and um. Right now, I uh, I don't actually have like it hooked up to an NVR or any kind of motion thing. So honestly, they don't do me a lot of good when I'm not home. But when I'm home, I usually at least have the front door camera up on my laptop so I can see when someone rings the doorbell, if it's a salesperson or, or who it is. Um, but I've been investigating using something like OpenCV or motion uh, to try and do motion detection off of these things. Um Although, you know, recently I actually just learned that, that nowadays these newer IP cameras actually have uh, enough processing power on them that they actually are the ones that do the motion detection. Uh, and when you buy like these little NVR th- N- N- NVRs that actually record off of the IP cameras, they don't actually do the motion detection anymore. It's all done on the camera and the camera sends a, a command or a, a, a notification to the NVR to start recording or to keep keep a recording if it has been recording that it detected motion yeah those new cameras are cool when they detect motion they also attack dine <laughs> well you you can get them to uh to send you an email and stuff so you could you know you could uh hit, hit possibly do an api for that so that's that's the thing i've been investigating is to either uh use something like OpenCV to do the motion instead of letting it letting the camera do the motion or let the camera do the motion for me and then it, in um uh, capture the notification from it to then like launch MP- uh, FFmpeg or something like that to capture the RTSP stream and uh, record it for me. Um, or a distributed denial of service attack. Yes, or that. Uh, that's the only. Yes, if if you could get the camera to send me an email when it's been rooted. That's the only thing that scares me about all these different 
IP cameras because most of them are made uh, in China. The firmware is, you, it's a black box. You don't know. And a lot of them, most of them want you to do um, either uh, PPNP or use their quote-unquote cloud service to set up your camera. And that is just so scary. And it's like, you know, they want you to open port, you know, some random port on your firewall. It just scares the daylights out of me. So that, that I don't even is- trust putting, I don't trust putting the Raspberry Pis that I control and have set up on the public internet. I, I don't, I don't have that much faith in humanity to let that happen, much less hardware that I can't validate anything about out. Well, that's the reason I run a PFSense as my firewall, and then it has an IPsec. I have an IPsec tunnel uh, or a Road Warrior configuration for my phone and my laptop so I can uh, connect back to my home router and then connect to the to the cameras. Yay for not being part of the problem. Yay. Yay. And I actually have a... Well, actually, the cameras aren't. The the Some of the other devices are on a separate VLAN, but I haven't been able to move the cameras over there yet. Um, so that way I can uh, just have a deny any for any kind of outbound traffic since theoretically none of that none of those devices should go out to the internet at all. So that's going to be my next yeah, step. Yeah, that's, that's one thing you kind of want to do. Yep. Because it doesn't matter how it got hacked. Um, if it's still inside your network, it can still send out uh, DDoS attacks. Exactly. And I know most people... Um, set up their firewalls to filter what comes in not what goes out and sat and so you take up that firewall turn it around and put it back down and sadly most businesses don't either when you start talking about egress filtering it's like what oh yeah or yeah once you get an agent inside the uh uh the the magic garden you're usually pretty golden i mean it's just like running host-based firewalls i mean um you know i, I think Brendan was, uh, I think it was you who was like, you know, since since you had worked previously at a university and most of the your devices uh, were publicly accessible, you know, it was it was habit to run fire, firewalls on all machines, and um, yeah, all of the the clients and the workstations <clears throat> and the servers at that job were accessible directly via their IP addresses because the university had large swaths of publicly accessible address space. So you had firewalls for the network, but you also had host-based firewalls on all the servers because everybody was a was a bad actor. There there were no safe spaces on the network. There was no nirvana where you could go and say, okay, all the hosts here are good. All the traffic here is good. No, everything is suspect all the time. <laughs> oh, and I remember um, people talking about how, you know, the traffic inside the data center is always safe and trustworthy because it's inside the data center. And I'm thinking to myself, you realize this is a public network, right? <laughs> Oopsie. But you can't break out of VLAN. <laughs> uh, what's to break out of when you're, it's already out? There is a final project that all three of us have been working on in our spare time. And that is this podcast. Um, we put a lot of time and energy into it. And if you like the show, please take the time to rate it in iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find it. Um, Additionally, if you have any feedback for us, if you have any comments or questions, or you have a direction you wish the show to go in, suggestions for theme music, perhaps. I I know there's some folks out there listening that can help us out with some theme music. 
send feedback to feedback at operations.fm or use operations FM on Twitter. We are happy to take any and all suggestions or comments. Um, if you have theme music, yes, that would be awesome. As Jack said, or if you have other ideas or you want to sponsor us for some bizarre reason that wraps it up for the 24th episode of the practical operations podcast. We have been Brenda Diesendorf, Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks and good night.